0: Once in a while, you meet somebody who blows your hair back, hands your socks up, and it's magical. It's a chance encounter. We met at a wedding um, of somebody who is very dear to me, and we both have lost our fathers. Mm -hmm. How long ago did your dad pass away?
1: Um, So my dad was um, the actor Bob Hoskins. He died Four years ago, just that he died in April 2014, so just over four years ago. And he was brilliant and funny and mad and wonderful and unpredictable and he was a, quite an extraordinary man. And I started out as an actor and I'm still an actor, but I found pretty quickly that the life didn't really suit me. So I started working as a personal stylist, which then led me into writing the book about my dad. And so it was a kind of a slightly meandering, weird route into being a writer. So I started interviewing him when he was still around. As he was sort of slipping away, I wanted to preserve as much of his memories as I possibly could, as he was, you know, he was forgetting things all, all the time and I couldn't quite bear the thought of that. So I wanted to just kind of write them all down in one place. Mm.
0: Um, so wonderful that you had the presence of mind even in that heightened state to do that I wish I'd done something like that it was just something it was just something that, that kind
1: of seemed like the obvious thing to do somehow so I started doing interviews with him but then I quickly found attempting that project while he was sick was too much the kind of contrast of how he was when he was well versus the contrast of him getting increasingly unwell. So I put it on the back burner. When he died, I wrote um, a blog post, which was called um, 11 Lessons from My Dad. It was basically all the things that he'd said to me over the years, all the funny little bits of advice and little things that he used to say to me, they all came flooding back. And I didn't really have any intention of doing anything with this list when he died I kind of I knew that I knew that the press would reach out and say do you want to pay tribute to his dad do you want to do this do you want to do that and I did want to pay tribute to him but I felt that his words would be more powerful and, and say more about him than anything that I could possibly write or say so I wrote these lessons down um and I can read them to you if you want
0: oh I'd love you to and I might Tear up a little bit. I'll do my best. My darling dad has died. I
1: loved him to the ends of the earth and he loved back just the same. These are the lessons he taught me. I will keep them close to my heart and remind myself of them whenever I stumble and falter. They are his words, the words spoken so often to encourage, comfort and reassure. This isn't general wisdom, rather advice that he tailor-made just for me. I love you, dad. Number one laugh there's humor to be found everywhere even in your darkest days there's something to have a joke about laugh long and loud and make other people laugh it's good for you two be yourself if someone doesn't like you they're either stupid blind (laughs) except who you are you've got no one else to be don't try to change yourself there's no point don't apologize don't make excuses be yourself and if anyone else doesn't like it they can fuck off <laughs> <laughs> be flamboyant it's who you are and always have been be eccentric and unique don't try to adapt yourself to someone else's you normal that belongs to them not you like yourself as you are four don't worry about other people's opinions everyone's a critic but ultimately what they have to say only matters if you let it Don't believe you're impressed. People can just as easily sing your praises as they can tear you down. Don't waste your time on things you can't change. Let it slide off you like water off a duck's back. Mm. Five, get angry. It's okay to lose your temper now and then. If anger stays in, it turns to poison and makes you bitter and sad. Get angry, say your piece, then let it go. Six, whatever you do, always give it a good go. Don't be afraid of failure and disappointment. If you fall flat on your face, then get straight back up. You'll always regret not trying. Disappointment is temporary. Regret is forever. Seven. Be generous and kind because you can't take it with you. When you've got something to give, give it without hesitation. Eight. Appreciate beauty. Take pictures and make memories. Capture it. You never know when it will be gone. Don't take yourself too seriously. People who take themselves too seriously are boring. Ten. Never, ever, ever, ever give up. Keep on punching no matter what you're up against. You're only defeated if you give up, so don't give up. Eleven, love with all your heart. In the end, love is the only thing that matters.
0: He, um, he really, oh, I feel like you just sort of showed me and anyone who's going to be lucky enough to listen to this all the place where all that lovely light danced, and that's beautiful. Mm. Oh, bless you, thank you. That's really yeah. beautiful. Wow. I feel a bit stumped for words now.
1: Um. <laughs> and that was one of the wonderful things about writing the book, is that I got to go and visit all these people who'd worked with him and knew him and hear these stories that I would have never have heard in a million years. Yeah. You know, like, I interviewed Ray Winstone, and he told me about the time when they got um, they got banned from the Elstree canteen, like for very naughty reasons that I won't go into now. <laughs> all these All these things that happened... Um, and his kind of working life and what he was like. I mean, I did work with him once. Where did you work with him? Oh, We did a music video together. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely bizarrely, yeah. God, years ago. Years, like like a
0: music ago. video where you were singing and dancing or like playing an instrument. No, oh, no, he was. It was some, it was a uh, Sheila by Jamie T. Isn't it that poet John Betchman's the Cockney Amorous, that sort of inscribed between those beats? Yeah, so I, I got, I was sort of privy to this whole
1: side of him that it was weird. Like, even though writing the book was incredibly painful and tough, and like I had to go and rewatch all the movies. I mean, it was grueling to have to sit through them all and see Dad at the various stages of his life and see and kind of uh, partner up my memory of him at this stage of my life so for example like um roger rabbit he was i was about three or four when he made roger rabbit so it's like oh yeah that's dad when i was four right. and yeah um yeah so yes yeah, so it was really weird like going through and like the, one of his later performances was um on a tv show called the street that he won uh, the emmy for um and that was kind of dad i think that was made about 10 years ago or something something like that he was diagnosed in 2011 but he started kind of like exhibiting symptoms i don't know yeah much much earlier really right the street is kind of dad when he was last sort of as i remember him being healthy so it was really it was it was bizarre it was really strange and when you're Parent is a successful actor, and they're, they're You can look back through their work, kind of chronologically. You know, there are all these, and there are all these points in time when we quite often went with him when he was working. For example, when he made Hook, we lived in LA for three months,
0: Amazing. Um, Amazing.
1: and that was a whole experience. And it was, you know, it was great. It was really, really, really happy memory. So it's kind of weird to have this sort of recording of him, which is simultaneously wonderful that it's there. And I mean, and it's lovely that I will be able to show those films to my son when he's older and, you know, their granddad is. But also when I I was writing the book about him, it was just so... It was really poignant and kind of difficult, and I think that if it hadn't have been for the book, I I don't think that I would have done that to myself because you know I'm not that much of a sadist. I think I think on balance, I think it's wonderful that I have that that record, you know. But it was hard at the time when I was writing the book.
0: I was going to say it took a lot a lot of guts and sweat and tears. Mm. And um, but I think well, you're a mum, so you, you know mm. you've you've been through childbirth. I haven't yet, but I think your pain <laughs> threshold goes up. I climbed Kilimanjaro with my cousin and some friends in 2012. Amazing. And I always said I never would have been able to have done that if my dad hadn't died. I don't think I cared as much. And so when you care less, you're more free or careless or reckless. You had that experience with
1: death. It puts things into context and you just kind of think, yeah, I'll get over this. This might hurt right now, but I'll get over And that, And that's the, what a lot of people, you know, they say, oh, good childbirth. Is it like, oh, it's awful? And it's like, yeah, it's not fun. Mm-hmm. It's for, you know, the big scale of your life. It's a relatively fleeting moment and then yes. you get over it.
0: And I think post-grief, there is that paradox at the centre of loss that actually can become empowering. And you learn how to draw on your strengths to comfort and steady you. And you learn how to accept comfort and steadiness from people around you is sort of seeking healing more than happiness and holding on to those moments of light that begin to seep out of your pores and begin to seep out of the pores of people around you. That's powerful. I've heard a lot of stories from people, you know, about finding out they were pregnant and um, just when they were losing a parent or a brother or a sister or falling in love, like I fell in love as my dad was dying. And just those sorts of experiences that out of something so tragic and hopeless and, you know, just not being able to even put words to, to what that whole experience can mean that something so wonderful can come out of that. Um, which I, I always think is really interesting. It's the, yin and yang of life isn't it it's the whatever and again I think when you
1: when you've lost someone you sort of appreciate this more that grief is the cost of love and you know inevitably if you love someone you will lose them or they'll lose you that's just what will happen to all of us yes that's okay that's fine because I would rather go through my life with as much love and abundance of affection than not have it Yes. I mean I, I think what's I think what's more sad is when people lose parents and they're not sad. Yes I think totally. I, One of my friends um, lost his mother a couple of years ago, and he was sad, but he was sad for what he didn't have. He was sad for the, he grieved the relationship that he would have liked, not the relationship that he lost. Mm. And I think that's much sadder.
0: I think we were the lucky ones, and I I, I think there is something about a father and daughter relationship that, when it works, is truly one of the greatest things. I mean, our fathers are... Our first loves. They're the first men in our life. I, I didn't know your father, but I loved him as an actor. He seemed like the epitome of a man. He seemed so masculine, grounded and solid. It's always so interesting when you haven't met somebody, you feel like you have a distinct impression of them. And for your dad, he just seemed like one of the good men. A modern, masculine, grounded, epic soul. For me to even think that not knowing him at all and then meeting you, I think I was right.
1: He was very, very masculine, but he wasn't macho.
0: Yes, like it was a kindness to him.
1: Yeah, he was vulnerable and he was kind and he was incredibly generous, like generous to a fault. And I think that's kind of what made him such a good actor. He had this lovely quality of his sort of emotions being quite close to the surface, really, but also this kind of completely authentic, almost like slightly primal, like masculinity. Mm. Um, He didn't need to prove his maleness to anyone do you know what I mean he didn't really he didn't give a shit really
0: <laughs> and that that's I think that's what it is right it's it, that's what's most appealing
1: yeah yeah oh pe- people who who give no shits are ultimately um appealing and kind of you want to be around people like that because they they sort of make you realize that like all the daft things that you sort of worry about and get yourself all kind of get your knickers in a twist over actually they're like I, m- I remember dad I'd be like oh dad oh this has happened he's like oh love leave our (laughs) There was always in that pattern. Oh, love, leave. Really, really grounding to be around that sort of personality. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Um, And again, like we were saying earlier, you know, when you've lost someone... This is this is such a strange example, but um, my mum and I watched the Paul McCartney, James Gordon Carpool Karaoke. Okay, I've not seen it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen some Carpool Karaoke's. No, the, the one he did
1: with McCartney is, you've got to watch it, it's amazing. Okay. And he talks about his mother who died, and because uh, McC- I think McCartney was like 14 or something when his mum died. And he wrote Let It Be when he was sort of really anxious one night and his mum came to him in a dream and said oh let it be everything will be fine let it be um And then I listened to it afterwards and I was like, holy shit, this is about what I went through, you know, and there are so many pieces of music and art and writing and film and all this stuff that is about that exact experience of having lost someone and not knowing how to cope and how to manage and just being completely overwhelmed with anxiety and grief and everything. And then you have that moment of clarity when you're like,
0: no, everything's going to be okay. Totally, and I think that's why I felt so compelled to set up scent in the mind, apart from the fact I'm an absolute art, but following my nose, and not just literally, figuratively for all of us, I think scent is a missing sense for all of us, which is so ironic as we use it every day, and I think we're just completely unaware of the profound effect that aroma has on our lives and can have on our lives. So people, perfumers, talk about the anatomy of a great scent. Yeah, it's fascinating. But the anatomy of a great scent is this life. It's the here, it's the now, it's what we're talking about. And those moments, they can be few and far between, but boy, are they powerful. I get those moments sometimes by talking to somebody like you, mm-hmm. where you can share an experience um, mm-hmm. and it and it feels wonderful. Do you have any memories of your father with, um, with smell, anything that kind of comes to mind? The first, the
1: most obvious one is the perfume that he used to wear, the cologne, it was um, Monsieur Balmain which is, like, it's a bit of a classic. Yeah. Um, it's, like, super citrusy. And yes. He used to love that. He was in New York. He'd just go and, like, buy it in bulk. He didn't go shopping often, but, like, if he happened to be in town or something, he'd sort of march into Selfridges and say, Monsieur Balmain, everything, ev- all, the, all the bottles. I want all of it. Oh, my God, I love it. <laughs> and Yeah, I still have a bottle of it upstairs. Yeah, that really reminds me of him. But also, he, he was a great, cook like when we were kids used to make spaghetti bolognese yeah Um, Yeah. and my brother wouldn't touch vegetables so dad used to like puree all these vegetables and sort of cook cook the meat in it and And i make the same recipe now so more or less not really a recipe but i make it in the same way now for charlie and it's like oh god that's that's dad or like the smell of like lamb lamb
0: cooking or that's funny Um, it's the same for me with with my dad and lamb he used to make slow roasted lamb that it would Um, cook the entire day with like a lemon and mint couscous that was like his signature dish something about the dads in the kitchen but yeah like just those moments and it Mm. just when you're cooking and when you're preparing can take you right back right just like that yeah and chewing gum the smell
1: of chewing gum in a car because dad always had loads of chewing gum. His <laughs> car, I don't know what chewing gum and fisherman's friends. Oh yeah, they're, but they're awful. They're the most horrible things. And he, he'd always be like, "Do you want a fisherman's friend?" And I'm like, "No, dad, I don't." <laughs> he was like, "Oh, they're nice." I'm like, "No, they're not. They're awful. They burn your Can't, mouth and burn your throat." Like, no, keep it to yourself, please. <laughs> Um see and also the smell of wild roses on a hot day. Mm. So there are certain smells that aren't necessarily of him, but they remind me of times when we were all together.
0: Yeah, oh, I love that your dad will miss Obama. What a beautiful citrus scent. I think the nose behind that fragrance was Calice Becker. And it was a bit sexy as well. I mean, it was super fresh. Bergamot, lemon, bitter orange. But there was a bit of musk going on there and a bit of amber and vetiver and oh, and sandalwood, which was one of my father's favourite smells used to wear a lot of raw sandalwood oil, but quite a few colognes that were imbued with that. And maybe that's why I like it so much. And when I wear it, I feel peaceful and comforted and empowered. So Mm. it's been four years. And Mm. how do you feel right now, today? I
1: feel much stronger, kind of grounded, I suppose. I think having a child does that because you have that that sort of focus that you can't you can't kind of say, Oh, I don't really feel like getting out of bed today because you've got a kid. No matter how sad you feel, you have to crack on with life. And I do feel sad. I miss him terribly it's not something that's ever really gone away um round about the six month mark was kind of the worst point for me that was like the really hardest or most bleak time I think because like the shock had sort of worn off and everyone else is just kind of getting on with their lives and sort of expecting you to do the same and you're kind of like well hold on a second I'm still I'm still grief-stricken you know I think it was around then that I realized that it was a life sentence yeah Yeah. but because I've sort of made friends with that pain Mm -hmm. and I've come to terms with it i'm not over it and i don't think it is anything i don't think it's something that you get over you don't move on you you move forward in life and you incorporate that loss and that grief into your day and it just becomes all right but it doesn't go away now i'm at a place where i can sort of linger in those happier memories the last christmas that we all spent together i instinctively i just sort of knew that that was going to be the last one but we still had a lovely day you know we we cooked this big meal and he loved it and he really enjoyed a glass of wine and we played his favorite christmas songs he still had a good day yeah there's sort of i like to reminisce it's like i can kind of allow him back into my head because it it still hurts but i can bear it
0: yeah yeah it's almost interesting in an in exploratory way cuz you're a bit older mm. you've had a major life experience happen you sort of let somebody back in and then you have a different relationship. And yes, they're not physically present, but there is still a relationship.
1: What I realised as well is that the love doesn't go away. And if anything, it's deepened with time. It's more, it's it's sort of in my bones, you know, that, mm. that, that he and I share. I mean, the last words that he ever said to me were, you're the most beautiful girl in the world and I love you so much. Ultimately... That yeah. is what I will take with me. And I mean, even though he died in horrible circumstances, really, I still feel lucky. I know that not everyone gets that. And I'm, God, I'm lucky. I had my dad, who could be difficult, wasn't perfect, who he had his flaws, my God, but he loved me. Yes. And as you say, is that that when the father and daughter relationship works, it's so powerful and I feel stronger for it.
0: Yeah, grief is so overpowering, so all-consuming, and it took me such a long time to accept that my father had died, which I think to somebody who hasn't lost a parent might seem strange, especially in light of the fact that I saw my father dead in the hospital and I saw his coffin go into the ground. It was visceral. I was there, but yet maybe he was just away. Maybe he hadn't died. Now that I've allowed him back into my head, it's potent. It sort of feels like a ever-evolving conversation and no more days of remembrance, so to speak, but days of joy and living and respect. And that grip, that tight, tight grip that grief held on me, it started to let go eventually. So I think it's made me realize that I've never given up on love because death can make you do that. And I haven't, and I didn't, and I'm proud of that. Whatever form that comes in into your life, like where you can take that, who you can be, how you can push yourself, where do you want to go? Do you you have any ideas of where you see yourself I'd like to
1: write more. I had this blog that kind of started out as like a, you know, just a straightforward fashion blog.
0: But over the last year or so,
1: I've written a lot about bipolar. And, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I had eating disorders and self-harming issues and all this stuff. What I noticed about writing the book and, and about, you know, writing the 11 Lessons is how when you open yourself up, and you share your experiences, people respond in such a such an amazing way, such a completely amazing way. And they're so... I have people get in touch with me all the time saying, oh, God, you know, I've recently been diagnosed with bipolar, and I don't know what to do. And I feel this, that, and the other. And, and I think I'm lucky to be in a position where I've been through that, and I understand what you're going through. I suppose what my mission is really is to try and dispel some of the shame around mental illness, around grief. I mean, there's a whole thing just around grief that we Brits are probably the worst for it, but I think it's a general thing in sort of Western cultures. You're sort of meant to just be able to deal with it. You don't make a spectacle of yourself at the funeral. You kind of hold it together. And, you know, when people say, oh, how are you doing with all that? You don't feel like you have permission to say, I'm really struggling right now.
0: Yeah, hold our shit together and keep walking on. And also, I think the stigma kind of increases as the time increases, you know? I've gone through lots of bouts of depression and very low moments. I think after a certain amount of time, I think people just expect... it's 5 years it's 6 years it's 7 years yeah. yeah yeah you know what what's wrong like still almost you know yeah. which yeah. is well, they, they get um compassion fatigue yeah totally and um, which is so disheartening the stigma around grief i think is alive and kicking but mm. no more so than in the mental health arena
1: M- misunderstanding and lack of awareness and i think sometimes even people who have mental illnesses sometimes they're the ones that kind of judge other people the most harshly Mm. weirdly but there is still so much stigma
0: yeah it's not just a lack of compassion it is still taboo and maybe that's fading
1: I found it surprising sometimes when these days I'll tell anyone I'll write it on my blog I'll tell anyone that I have bipolar and I'm not ashamed and I'm not embarrassed I didn't choose it You know, I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't invite it, but there it is. And, you know, I have to look after myself and I need to take medication every day and all this stuff. But the comparison that my husband always makes is that in the past when I have felt ashamed, he's like, well, I have asthma. That doesn't make me a failure, but you know, I've got to look after myself and take medication every day. What's, what's the difference?
0: Yeah. Otherwise I
1: wouldn't be able to breathe. So many people go through periods of deep depression or anxiety, or it's kind of a part of everyone's lives. And yet it's this like sticky, uncomfortable thing that people don't really want to talk about and they feel embarrassed and anxious about. And what I noticed is that when I used to confide in people who I kind of thought would understand, because I sort of sensed that maybe they went through some of the things that I did, they would sometimes be the people who were the least understanding, the most judgmental, because what I was saying to them was too close to their own shame and yes. their, the the stuff that they felt worried about and it's because you know the reality is they need to be on medication as well understandably they don't want to kind of cope with that or deal with that reality and i think it's really sad i think people are sort of suffering unnecessarily you know you don't we don't need to suffer with this stuff like if we were just a bit better at talking about it and a bit more comfortable with the fact that mental illness exists and everyone will experience it in some shape or form even if you never have a depressed day in your life i'm sure there'll be someone who will go through it and i think that i would like for people to come away from my blog and feel they're not quite as alone
0: i think you do that so beautifully and succinctly with your blog and i love the thought of creating something that's transformative whether it's in a small way or in a big way it's exciting and for me we're sent in the mind to delve into our sense of smell which is one of the most powerful senses we possess is just so thrilling and we were talking about it before just the hint of something familiar what it triggers fishermen's meat cooking aftershave those moments that we treasure forever and to think of what is happening now scientifically with olfaction in the years and the decades to come i mean the world is smells oyster that's what i say
1: kind of what you're saying with the power of scent because in some ways it can be kind of an indulgent lovely thing to do for yourself to go and buy yourself a fabulous perfume but then it does have much deeper meaning so i i think that it's a mistake to sort of dismiss these things that we kind of feel are possibly a bit you know like fripperies when actually no that can be quite meaningful Generally speaking, I'm pretty balanced because I'm on the correct medication. Um, I see a very good therapist once a month. I exercise a lot. I eat well. I try not to drink too much. Sometimes that doesn't happen. But, you know, (laughs) for the most part, I exercise pretty good and I keep myself pretty well. But I'm still vulnerable like I am a sensitive vulnerable person for sure like there's no doubt about that my clothes often are like a bit of a suit of armor mm. doesn't mean that I go around in sort of massive shoulder pads and spiky scary looking jewelry but the way I dress myself is my way of protecting myself and kind of it's another form of self-care for me my dad's mum, when she died in hospital of cancer she wore red lipstick pretty much until the day she died she didn't have any hair she didn't have any eyelashes cancer had sort of pretty much robbed her of everything but she still wore her red lipstick she was very glamorous made herself all these very beautiful clothes and and it was her way of sticking up two fingers at this you know horrible disease that was killing her she was like you may kill me but you're not going to take my red lipstick yeah and i and i i think that i've inherited that you know like yes i have bipolar and i do struggle with a lot of things but damn it i'm gonna get out of the house and i'm gonna live my life and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be defined by this thing
0: i, I identify with what you're saying you know how you dress yourself and and i think that that can go to how you make yourself up and how you sent yourself mm-hmm. if you take the time i think it would be nice to give people more of an insight into that because it's so yeah. simple and you know it doesn't have have to cost a lot of money and it can just be what you have in your cupboard or what you have at home but just maybe getting a sort of fresh take on on what to do with that almost like you know a cook coming into your kitchen and being like oh you've got some basil in the cupboard and when I was a stylist I mean it was so interesting how people would kind of open up like
1: during a styling session and they would sort of I remember this one woman told me about how she'd survived breast cancer but when she looked in the mirror she kind of she saw a patient she didn't see a person What we really needed to do was to kind of inject a bit of joy into how she got dressed. A lot of her clothes had become the clothes that she wore to hospital, and she just needed her clothes to be fun and bright and optimistic. It was so interesting how initially she was like, oh, all my clothes are a bit boring. And that kind of sparks this poignant but kind of optimistic, you know, actually, your clothes and the way you choose to not only present yourself, but I think it's a sort of a celebration of being alive and being here and like, damn it, wear the red lipstick because, you know, you might not be here tomorrow, huh?
0: What I always find really inspiring about talking to somebody different is just what it sparks in me and then it makes you think about what you can then do for somebody else. So it's really nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: It's so nice when you meet someone and you have that connection right away. Oftentimes with friendships, you know, they kind of develop over time. But you and I met and we were like, oh.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, we need to be friends. Yeah, I know. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that so crazy? When it comes to love, I'm not very good, (laughs) but like, (laughs) when it comes to friendship, I know straight away, I'm like, yay or nay? And if it's nay, no one's going to talk me into it being being good, you know? Yeah, I I know what you mean. Um, What's Rose's manifesto? Like, what are you thinking?
1: I am learning to be in the moment. And I know that's such a cliche And I know that's such a hackneyed old thing to say But I think it's so important And I find I've wasted So much time over the years Worrying about the future Agonising about the past Thinking that I've made the wrong choice Just today I was like Oh maybe I shouldn't have done this And it's like my, my dad Bringing back to my dad My dad's voice pops up in my head And he's like Oh love fucking hell Move on <laughs> Do you know what I mean Let it go And I think that's what I take from dad And the lessons I have to remind myself that what I have now can go any second and I have to try and enjoy where I am. And there are all these things professionally that might happen to me. Maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not. And that's kind of an uncomfortable place to be.
0: Yes, it's exciting and terrifying. Exactly, exactly. And it's that
1: uncertainty is difficult. But I think what I'm learning is to enjoy this moment, like this moment right now that I'm in right now, talking to you. I've got my little monitor and I can see my son snoozing very sweetly in his mm-hmm. crib. And it's like, no, actually, what I've got right now is pretty good, like right now when you can accept where you are and accept yourself, you lose a lot of shame. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, the, the, the shame that kind of binds you to your mistakes or your your vulnerabilities and yeah. i think that if you can learn to dispel the shame that doesn't serve you and accept who you are and accept where you are and kind of have faith that things will work out as they are supposed to wear the red lipstick because you know you might not be here tomorrow huh?